From Data Rails, this is FPNA Today. Hello, everyone. Welcome to FPNA Today. I am your host, Paul Barnhurst, aka the FPNA Guy, and you are listening to FPNA Today. FPNA Today is brought to you by DataRails, financial planning and analysis platform for Excel users. Every week, we welcome a leader from the world of financial planning and analysis and discuss some of the biggest stories and challenges in the world of FPNA. We will provide you with actionable advice about financial planning and analysis. This is going to be your go-to resource for everything FPNA. As a reminder, you can earn CPE credit for this episode. It'll be loaded about a week after the episode comes out through Earmark. You can go, and if you CPA or I think also your CPM, some of those certifications, you can get CPE credit. And if you enjoy the podcast, we ask you to leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. With that being said, I'm thrilled to welcome today's guest on the show, Glenn Snyder. Glenn, welcome to the show. Thanks, Paul, for having me. Yeah, no, really excited to have you. So just a little bit about Glenn. Glenn comes to us from the Bay Area. He's currently the v- VP of FPNA at Mobilium. Mobilium. Mobilium, thank you. He has worked for several different companies in multiple FPNA roles in the Bay Area. He earned his bachelor's from UCLA as he's sporting his uh, jacket today, having a good football season, my dad. He did economics and then he earned his MBA from the University of San Francisco. So Glenn, maybe you could start by just telling us a little bit about yourself, your background, and how you ended up where you're at. Sure, Paul. So really, I started my career after graduating from UCLA as a commercial loan officer. And I quickly realized that I was more of an analyst than the person who brought in business. And so after a couple of years, I moved over to FP&A and I, I went to Franklin Templeton, the big asset management company. And that's where I really got my feet wet with FPNA. I was an international analyst. I really enjoyed it. And then FPNA at Franklin got decentralized and I moved into a business and I was doing both FPNA and corporate strategy. Was there for a while, then uh, moved on to other companies such as Visa, Charles Schwab, Digital Realty, all of which are public companies in the S&P 500. And then I decided to go a little different path. I worked for a private equity firm for about a year and a half and then a online retail company, and now I'm over at Mobilium. So really, my career has taken me from large companies to small companies, lots of different industries, all pretty much within the Bay Area. I love living here, so that worked out well. But now I get to lead FP&A teams and really try and help companies get to a new level. Great. No, it sounds like you've definitely worked for a lot of different companies helping, you know, with FP&A. And I'm curious, what what part of the Bay Area? Like where I lived in the Bay Area for a couple of years. So I'm in a little town called San Carlos. I'm about a 10 minute drive north of Palo Alto, mm-hmm. about 15 minutes south of the San Francisco airport. Got it. So yeah, I'm I know right where you're at. I lived all around yeah. the Bay for a couple of years back in the 90s. So. Okay. Fun. That's yeah. a great, great area. Beautiful, beautiful country. If you know, yes. I will say to our audience, if you haven't been there, I recommend doing a visit. It's well worth it to see the ocean and the beauty of the, the Bay Area. Absolutely. So what what has kept you working in FPNA all along? You mentioned you did a loan officer, realized you were a little bit more of an analyst type, but what particularly about yes. FPNA has you know excited you and kept you going? You know, there's a couple of things. One is in FPNA, you get to touch every aspect of the company. Right. Whether, you know, if you're interested in technology, you could support the IT team. If you like sales, if you like marketing, if you like product management, whatever it happens to be, there's an area that you could go over and support. So in FPNA, not only can you reach out and learn about every different aspect of the company you work for, but you also have a direct line to the people who are making decisions, those executives who are driving the strategy. And when you get to the point where you can influence them and they reach out to you as a thought partner and say, hey, I'm thinking about maybe taking the business in this direction. What do you think? Now, here you are as this FP&A analyst or manager, whatever level you have to be at. But now you get influence on the direction of the company you're working at. And that's a pretty cool thing. When you think about finance and kind of back office functions, oftentimes you're really behind the scenes. But FP&A allows you to be behind the scenes 
and help driving the direction of the company at the same time. So with that, I've always kind of enjoyed that corporate strategy side of things. In my career, I've spent eight years of my career at doing corporate strategy, mm-hmm. as well as 20 years in FP&A. But it's that blend of the two that's really excited me. And I found that I could bring that finance discipline that I have to corporate strategy and helping companies uh, really drive their direction. And that the balance of the two it seems to really add a lot of value. I, I could totally see how that does. I once wrote an article calling you know, strategy is the overlooked FP&A skill, because I think there's a lot that can be done when you know how to speak the strategy to help with the influencing, especially like you mentioned with the numbers. So I could see how that would serve you really well, that combination. Yeah. In fact, really, when you think about corporate strategy, a lot of times when people are doing it, they're out there and they, you get this optimistic view of things. Mm-hmm. But in finance, you know, we're always a little more grounded, right? We, we have a <laughs> sense of where that reality line is. And when you can bring that to the optimistic side, you really land in a good place that is achievable, but it is still, you know, that aspirational goal, if you will. Yeah, I, I understand what you're saying. Yes, they bring the grounded of the financials and looking at the economics and being able to say, yes, that's a great idea, but 200% growth next year isn't realistic or whatever the number is that we exactly. see sometimes. That's right. That's like, right. Exactly. You know, sometimes you look at it and go, that's mathematically not possible. You realize this is what it would take. It's like, oh, you got a good point. Let's rethink you know, the numbers behind the idea. Right. Well, and this is really important. And I think everybody in FP&A who does budgets and goal setting and those types of things, you want to make sure that your goal is achievable. Mm-hmm. If you have zero chance of achieving your goal, what's the point of the goal, right? You're not really doing anything that's going to mean or have any value. Plus, you're only going to be disappointed. So set a goal that might take some work. It might be a little ambitious, but it still has that. You're still grounded in reality that, you know, you say, 60% chance I could go and hit that. 40% chance you don't, but you're still there. It's not the 0% yeah. chance, you know, you're never going to make it. Exactly. You want a stretch goal. You want it to be difficult and push the team, but you don't want it to be demoralizing. Like whoever set that up is crazy. It's not possible because then people feel defeated before they start and you, you've lost the battle when that happens. Exactly. And, you know, really, if you have that happen over and over and over again, it becomes a very difficult environment to work in because you feel like as an employee, no matter what you're doing, you're not going to hit those goals. And if your bonus or something like that is based on those goals, that could be uh, a very difficult thing. And that's where you can start seeing employee turnover and those types of things. So you want to make sure that you can achieve your goals. It doesn't mean that, that you, you know, you sandbag them. But, you know, you want it, you want them out there where you can make a difference. You could, you could grow the business. You could grow the company's top line. You could grow the company's bottom line, those types of things. But you, you, and you might have to work hard for them too. But at the end, you know that it is possible. It is achievable. Yeah. No, I agree. And so I, I imagine you're probably around budget season. A lot of companies are. Yes. And we're going through that. I know you mentioned some board meetings. So I'm curious. You know, there's been a lot of debate. What's your approach to forecasting? Do you like seeing monthly, quarterly? Do you like to just do a static budget, a rolling forecast? How do you kind of think about that? Do you have a favorite approach that you have found works well? Yeah, I do. And, you know, I mean, granted, every company is different and you got to take into account all the things that are moving around. If you're in a very, you know, a small startup company, monthly forecasts will probably make a lot more sense because things are changing so much. Yep. But really, once you get to that little bit more established level, I'm a big fan of the quarterly forecast, because if you do it on a monthly basis, you're spending probably one week a month just doing a forecast, which means mm-hmm. that 25% of your time, you're not helping to drive the business forward. You're not trying to make what you do in FP&A better, more efficient, or making an impact on the company. You're doing a forecast. And so for me, I'm a bigger fan of doing that quarterly forecast where you could take about two to three weeks in that middle of the quarter month, when it's usually a little bit quieter, and really do a deeper dive to get the business aligned. You know, if you're doing a monthly forecast, it's very difficult to get inputs from all your different business units and get them all to buy into and have it all meshed together so it makes sense. Oftentimes, finance would just do it from a top-down perspective, but then you're missing really what's going on in the business. That quarterly forecast allows you to go a little deeper to make sure you're connecting with the business and everybody's moving in the same direction and everybody buys into that forecast. Otherwise, you have finance saying, hey, we're going to grow at 12% this quarter. And you get the business going back saying, no, we think we're going to grow at 22. And someone else said, no, we're going to grow at seven. And it's all over the place. So 
I really like that that alignment that you get with a quarterly forecast. Got it. And I can see where that quarterly forecast does allow for greater alignment. I know in my career, when you're doing a monthly and you're trying to get it done, you can't get a hold of someone, the business is busy, and you're like, all right, we're just going to make assumptions. Based on what exactly. we're seeing, here's what we're going to do. We've all been there. Right. So, you know, next question for you is just around teams. You know, I know you've managed a lot of teams. You've built you've built multiple teams over your career. Can you maybe talk about how you think about building a team and what advice you would offer to someone who's, you know, in that situation right now where they're trying to build out an FP&A team and an FP&A function? You know, it is very challenging because when you start off and you might be the first employee of a group or you're coming in and it's it's a very small team and you got to build and grow, you have to take care of the business. You have to recognize that you in finance, you are not interacting with the customers. You are not, you know, driving the revenue and, and making sure customers are happy and creating new products and so on. You're there to support the people who do. So you got to make sure that they are supported so the business can keep moving forward. At the same time, you need to build out your FP&A practices and you need to go over and make sure you have the right kind of models and templates and everything else set up so that you can do your job in a very efficient way. And so effectively, when, when you're building out a team, you're doing the job of two people, at least. And many of the times when <laughs> I have started a new role, I've told my wife, you know, for the first six months, I'm probably going to be working 80 hours a week because I'm going to have to do the job that needs to be done as well as the job that they're not doing to get the company and the group into the right spot. So that's one of the things. Just have that mental awareness. You're probably going to be working a little more at the beginning just to go over and get out in front of things. But the other thing that's really important is to really understand where the biggest pain points are. Have conversations. When you first come into that role, go out and meet with all the key leaders in the company and talk to them about what do you need from FP&A? How can we help? Are we doing things for you that you don't need? What are we not doing that you do need? You know, is it a reporting thing? Is it a advice thing that, you know, you just need to be more engaged? Is it something you could solve with a system or is it something that you're going to need people for? And really get a sense of what the true needs are. And then what I always try and do is in your first 90 days, put together a three-year strategy and you start with Here's where we are. Here's what we do well and evaluate your people, your processes, your data, your systems, all of that and recognize how much is automated, how much is manual, and then figure out what does three years look like? If you do it right, what will that be working? And then work backwards and you come back with in year one, we should be accomplishing A, B, and C. In year two, D, E, and F, and so on. You go out and you basically lay that out and then you share that with everybody so that everybody knows where you are and where you're trying to go so you could go in the same direction. I like how you laid that out first, you know, the importance of going to the team and understanding their needs, right? Often in FP&A, we can come in and look at it and see the mess and say, oh yeah, I know what needs to be done, but we're really focusing on our needs when that's the case. And that may not be what the business needs. So I, I like that. And then three-year plan, I hadn't heard it put that way. It makes a lot of sense and work backwards and figure it out and share it with everybody. So you're aligned and you have a vision for where you want to go. Exactly. That's that strategy side of me that, that I think is so important. But I've done that in probably my last five or six roles. And when I go over and, and put that three-year plan out, oftentimes when I hit that three-year mark and I look back, 95% of the goals that we laid out, we hit. Now, sometimes things happen and you, you learn and you change. That, you know, okay, that happens. Sure. You, you, you don't have a crystal ball. You can't predict the future exactly. <laughs> but if you have that plan and you know the direction, you know what to focus on and what not to focus on. You know where you need to put certain needs or personnel. You know what you need out of your system. And you have that better sense of where you are going so you can solve the problems in a much better way. Plus, when you communicate with other people, especially some of your key partners like HR and accounting who are providing you with information, you can make sure that they're aligned with where you're trying to go too. And then you can bring them all together so that it really makes for a much more efficient and effective organization. Got it. That that makes a lot of sense to me. And definitely that is a much more efficient approach. You know, kind of along those lines, you're starting to build out an FP&A organization. Things are going well. How do you evolve the group from kind of production group, right? We all have reports. We're delivering on all our reports to really being the value creator, that strategic analytic group that so many businesses need FP&A to be today. How do you make that bridge? 
Well, you know, it starts with eliminating the manual work. If you're moving data from point A to point B, you're not really adding a lot of value. Systems can do that for you. Figure out how to automate and try and make investments into systems. And even if it's, even if you don't have a big budget, there are still some systems, some approaches that you could go over, make some very small investments, or even just build out better models or in Excel, use Microsoft Access, use, you know, some of these more platforms that you probably have access to today to build greater automation so you could stop moving data from point A to point B and you could focus on the analysis and the value add. The second thing you need to do is make sure that you are really partnering with your business. Really go out there, make sure on a monthly basis, you should be in front of every business leader. If they manage a, bu- a budget, they should have a monthly meeting with your FP&A team. Someone on your team needs to go over and make sure that they're being taken care of there. So when you do that, You are now learning from the business what their needs are, where are they going, and now you need to start being proactive. That's the last piece of this, is to really make sure that you're saying to the business, how can I help you? Oh, I understand you're going in this direction. You know, I have some data. I might be able to help you out with that. What if we enhance one of your reports? Let me try and put something together for you and run Mm -hmm. it by and see if this will be helpful. Those types of things. And now when you can start adding value to the business, when they're not even asking for it, that business leader is going to turn around and say, wow, you're thinking about how to make me successful. I'm going to engage with you in a much more proactive way as well, telling you what's coming on because I want you, I want that engagement back. And that's now where you get yourself out of the, I'm just producing a budget variance report or I'm just updating a model to I'm having a conversation with the business about where they're going and driving a solution for them. As I heard you there, it sounded like there were three things. The first is you got to free up time. By eliminating manual processes, you got to figure out where you can automate or eliminate processes, but being more efficient in the automation side. The second is really spending time with the business, getting to know them, making sure they know who you are and that they know you're a partner. And third is being proactive. As you start learning about things, don't be afraid to you ask them, hey, I, I did some work on this. You had mentioned this and here's some thoughts and giving ideas and helping them achieve their goals. And I can totally see if you do those three things, I've seen it in my career, it makes a huge difference. All of a sudden, they want you in the room, right? They want you to, yeah, I'm making a decision. I want to know what Glenn thinks about this, or I want to know what Paul thinks instead of, hey, here's where we're going. Can you just uh, build a model to justify it? Exactly. It takes you from a support role to a partner role. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that it does require, and sometimes, you know, most finance people, you're, low, you're more on the introverted side than the extroverted <laughs> side, right? When you, one of the things that you really need to do is have a little courage though. Have courage to propose a new idea. And I'm not saying stand up in an all hands meeting and throw out some ideas, but one on one with that business leader and say, Hey, you know what? In that last meeting we just had, you were talking about this. Have you thought about these types of things? And you might get more no's than yeses, meaning that they're going to tell you, no, we can't do that or no, that doesn't work. But then you're learning from them about why and you're now becoming more valuable. But if one out of every five of your ideas is actually really good, you're going to now help change that business. And if you don't have the courage to speak up and try, you will never get those one out of five. So it's one of those things that you just, you, you have to, you have to have courage, but you got to be proactive and you got to try it because if you don't speak your mind, what value would you really think you're going to have? Yeah, I a hundred percent agree with that. What advice I got from a VP that I had, he goes, one of the best things you could do is speak up in a meeting and you know, and start talking and let people know what you're thinking. And as you do that, people will look to you and they'll see that you know what you're talking about, that you can make a difference. He's like, don't feel like you can't make a difference and you can't add value. Yes, all your ideas may not be successful. In fact, odds are most of them won't and that's okay. But you know, if it's one or five, you, you're going to add value. Whereas if you say nothing and just listen to everybody else, you just become a back office support person if you're not willing to speak up and try to add value. That's right. And I actually, I've had an executive say to me, if someone's in a room, if they're in a meeting and they don't say anything during the entire meeting, why are they even there? Don't invite them anymore. Because if you're showing up to a meeting, you're there for a reason. If you just want to go over and get a readout of what happened, fine, you can listen in on the phone. If you're going to be there in person, you're sitting in a conference room, especially if you have to travel to a meeting. 
you need to be engaged. You need to, you know, make sure that you're sharing your ideas, but you're talking with people and make sure your presence is felt. Otherwise, they're not going to invite you back. 100% agree. Great advice. I mean, especially if you're traveling, right? You just spent a couple thousand dollars of the company's time to travel. Right. You're also sitting in a room with people that, you know, in many cases are senior leaders and they brought you in for advice. They didn't bring you in so you could just sit in a room and not say anything. And so yes. you need to make sure you're delivering on that. Yeah, absolutely. But, but the one thing is just be careful, right? I mean, especially if you're, if you're newer or you're a little more junior, you know, don't go crazy. Don't call people <laughs> out, you know, keep it professional. But sometimes if you're a little shy about something, when you take a break, walk up to one of those leaders and say, hey, I loved what you said here. Did you think about this? Or I was thinking, could something like this help you out? And just have that one-on-one conversation. Mm -hmm. And then there's a good chance when you come back from that break, that leader says, hey, you know what? Paul just had this really great idea. Paul, why don't you share that with the team? And that will give you a much greater exposure. So you don't have to always speak up in front of the group, but make your presence known. Totally agree. And that's, that's a great advice there. I remember, uh, someone who's, you know, senior leader now, he was in early meetings in his career and he'd called a lot of people out and was challenging them all the time. And he'd been doing it in a lot of meetings. And one of the sales VPs pulled him aside. He goes, I know what you're doing, but this isn't helping and taught him the idea of the emotional bank account. Basically, you're pulling a bunch of withdrawals and you're not putting deposits in that show you've added value. So here's, you know, a different way you could look at that. He said that was kind of a turning point for him in his career because he was doing some of those things you mentioned, you know, kind of being junior and calling people out and saying, hey, you know, these numbers aren't right and you need to be doing this instead of offering advice when it made sense, pulling people aside when it made sense and being there as a support. By no means, you know, should we be there dominating the meeting? Exactly, exactly. You know what it is like. 13 different spreadsheets emailed out to 23 different budget holders. Multiple iterations, version control, errors, back and forth updates. You never really feel in control of the consolidation and collection process. Yep, I've been there. Stop. Breathe. DataRails is the financial planning and analysis platform for Excel users. DataRails takes data from all your company's disparate sources. No organization is too complex, consolidating everything into one place, secured in the cloud. Now all your data finally talking to each other. Everything is automated back into your report in Excel. Cash flow. FX conversion, intercompany transactions, now automated and up-to-date. Drill down and variance analysis in seconds. Don't replace Excel, embrace Excel. Turn your Excel into a lean, mean FP&A machine. Find out more at www.datarails.com. So, you know, next question here for you. You know, as a leader of a team, how do you different, differentiate yourself and your team? Well, you know, it's, it's a great question. One of the things that I really try and do is make my team a model for everyone else. When, and what I mean by that is, first of all, failure is a great way to learn. And you'll fail a lot. And, and that's okay. But keep that within the team. And as a leader, I want to make sure that I am working with my team members to set them up for success to make sure that we are looking over each other's work, that we are bouncing ideas off each other. If someone's going to be making a presentation in a larger group or something, to, you know what, let's practice through it. Let's go through, well, how are you going to answer this question? How are you, you, know, how are you going to present this information? To make sure that your team members are as successful as they can be. And so really what I try and do is make sure that anyone outside of my immediate team only sees successes from everybody on my team. And if there's a failure, if we make a mistake, in a day, that's on me because I run the team. So I raise my hand and say, hey, that's my fault. I'll go and fix it. Never point a finger at anyone on your team. But when they come back and say, oh, this was really great, and they try and give you credit, give the credit to your team members. At the end of the day, if you lead a successful team, you will be recognized for it. You don't need to be taking the credit for it. So that's one thing is I want to make sure that the members of my team are looked at in a very positive way, showing that they could do a great job because I am helping them to set them up for success. 
That's one thing. The second thing is, is to do it the right way. Don't go over and try and make another group look bad. Don't go and try and take credit for things that you didn't do. Show up each day, be professional, you know, really kind of make sure that you are going to help other people succeed as well. And when you do that, other groups start noticing. And really for me, what I want to do is I want people to look at my team and say, I like the way they're doing that, or I want to be a part of that team. And when you could get there, now you are that kind of beacon of light, if you will, for others on how to go about doing things. And that's what I really strive for. I couldn't have said it better myself. I really love the point of take ownership for the for the team's mistakes in the sense that you're the leader, you mm-hmm. own the process, but give credit where credit is due. As you mentioned, you know, people worry about, well, you know, I need the credit because I got to get promoted. I need the next role. If your team's doing well, you will be successful. They tell people if you meet the intent of the business instead of focusing on yourself and you do good work and your team does good work, the rest will take care of itself. People recognize when you're providing value and when your team's providing value. You don't need to get caught up in the political games. It doesn't benefit anyone. Exactly. And, you know, a lot of times, you know, you'll have Fred, Fred on your team is doing a great job or, you know, Wilma is just really great or whatever. At the end of the day, they also recognize it's you who's leading the team. And so Mm -hmm. if you have a, especially if you're coming in and you know you're in a tough spot because your team is underperforming, give your people credit, show them how to make that success. And what's going to happen is a year from now or whatever, everyone's going to say, hey, wow, Paul came in and that this team is operating so different. Paul really was a great leader. He's led a fantastic team. You may not have gotten credit for anything throughout the year, but you'll be recognized for leading the people who are doing a great job. That's really good advice. I I like how you said that there. You know, and as a leader, obviously, from time to time, we have to hire people. And we have yes. to either grow the team or replace someone, whatever the situation may be. What are some of the characteristics you look for? I mean, how do you go about hiring somebody for your team? So um, I usually get people uh, laughing quite a bit in my interviews. And afterwards, they'll <laughs> tell me it was the strangest interview they've ever had in their life. <laughs> and that that makes me happy when I, when I hear that. Part of it is, is because by the time you're interviewing with me, I've read your resume. I get a sense of your skill set. I'm not going to ask you about, tell me a time you've done this or give me an example of that because that stuff, that's all teachable. I want to understand, do you have the characteristics and the things that I can't teach? Are you creative? Are you a fast learner? Do you have integrity? Are you responsible? Those are the types of things. I can't teach that to somebody. I can teach someone how to build a model or how to do a budget or be a good business partner, but I can't teach them to communicate effectively. So I'm looking for those characteristics that I can't teach because if you have that makeup, you're going to be successful. It's easy to pick up, hey, you know what? Here's how we build this Excel model or here's our new system. You know, this is what you're going to have to go and learn. Great. Okay, fine. Those are all things that you could go and learn. But to be a fast learner, how do you teach that? How do you teach someone to learn more quickly, right? So that's what I'm really looking for. And I have found that if you have somebody with the right skill set, not the, I could go over and build a model skill set, but the right internal makeup, that's where your superstars will really lie. Whether they have 10 years of experience in FP&A or only two, it doesn't really matter. It matters whether or not they can pick things up quickly, whether or not they communicate well. Are they a good team player? You know, Do they have integrity in what they do? Are they accountable for their own actions? Those are the things that you want someone to show up with. Whether or not they've had five years of experience doing budget variance analysis, really, eh, you know, that's easy enough to learn. It's a good point. At the end of the day, the characteristics, the ability to think, the critical learning, you want to make sure they have all those things. And yes, most of the other can be taught. In an ideal world, you want both. Sure. We're all yeah, going to want exactly. both. But if you have to pick, you always want the person that can learn quickly, that has integrity, that, you know, is a critical thinker, curious those things that you know will allow them to be successful. That's always, in my mind, I've always thought that's first because, yeah, I've hired some people that have very little or no, you know, finance experience that have been great hires and I've hired other people that have experience that haven't been as great. But I think that's a really good point, what you mentioned there. Yeah, exactly. One of the best hires I had in the last five years was a woman who never really worked in FP&A before. 
And, mm-hmm. you know, she had a good skill set. She worked at private equity firm. She had an accounting background, but she had never really been in a corporate FP&A environment. But what I saw in her was someone who brought a lot of energy. She was very intelligent. She was engaging. She wanted to learn. She had a passion for the business. And I was like, you know what? With those skill sets, you're going to be able to pick up the stuff on what we do. FP&A is not that complicated. <laughs> it's about how you go about doing things more than what you do that makes a difference. And she was absolutely phenomenal. So it's really not about the experience and how long your butt was in a chair doing something. It's more about whether or not you can make the impact in the group that you're going into. I agree. So next question here. I know, you know, during your career, you've uh, been involved in data analytics a fair amount as well as FP&A. From what mm-hmm. I've seen, you've owned both functions at times. How do you mm-hmm. coordinate and manage the two teams? And what have you found works to ensure that data analytics and FP&A are working together versus almost having two versions of the truth and not being on the same page? Well, so let's start with a very simple fact. Finance numbers don't move by themselves, right? Your revenue doesn't grow on its own. Your expenses aren't moving on their own. It's because of underlying drivers. Those drivers are metrics. Those metrics are data, and you do analytics on the data. So if you are not looking, as an FP&A person, at the analytics that are driving the business, you are completely missing the story. Because you could go over and you could say revenue went up 12% from last year or expenses are down. Great. That's what you know. You refer to as elevator analysis. You're going up, you're going down. It doesn't tell you why. The why is in the underlying metrics. So whether you have a data analytics team or not, FP&A should be involved in the metrics and the data and the analytics of the business regardless. So you have to have that connection. If those two groups, if you have those two areas in your company, and you are not working together, there is a lot of opportunities being missed there because the data analytics team will be able to go in and show you insights into what's going on that will not only help explain what has happened, but help you predict what's going to happen. And if you can get that, now all of a sudden, your budgets, your forecasts are a lot more accurate, are a lot more meaningful. And at the end of the day, what it's really about is storytelling. What's going on in the business? How do you tell that story? Whenever I go out and I speak at a conference, my favorite question I always like to ask people is, tell me what, if you were to bake one piece of a pie, what kind of pie would you bake? And people would say, oh, chocolate cream pie or cherry pie or apple pie. I would usually get a smart ass who would come and say pizza pie, you know, something like that. Now, Mm -hmm. all those pies by themselves, fantastic. But what happens when you take each one of those pieces and put it together to form a whole pie? The middle of that pie is absolutely disgusting, but a business leader is dealing with that. Their pie slices are data, product data, customer data, revenues, expenses, headcount, external market, you know, sales channel, whatever it happens to be. They're getting data from all these different places, but the data oftentimes doesn't connect. So how do they tell the more complete story that says one piece of information leads to another, that leads to another, that leads to your conclusion of here's how revenue is going up. And you do that by connecting the data and the analytics with the financials to tell that complete story. So to me, that's where the two teams are naturally married together. I I like the pie analogy. I might have to steal that one. That's a really good one. I like the the way you described that. I hadn't heard it that way, but it makes a lot of sense. And I, I totally agree with you. You can't tell the story without the metrics. So you need to have the analytics. And if they're separate teams, you need to be working closely together. There needs to be that alignment. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, you talked a little bit about this earlier, but, you know, what are the key things that you think FP&A needs to do to be viewed more as a strategic business partner, right? We hear that term a lot today. And I think sometimes people are not sure what that means or how they you know, go about being that strategic business partner. So maybe elaborate a little bit more on that. Yeah, so let's start with the last part of what you said, a strategic partner is about being a partner. And a partner doesn't mean that it goes one way. It has to go both ways. So first of all, if you're going into a meeting with your business partners and it's all about you and what you want to accomplish, you're missing the point. If you have a 30-minute meeting with a business partner and you know you need to get certain pieces of information out of them, okay, focus on that. But make sure you're leaving 10, 15 minutes in that meeting to say, 
What else can I be doing for you? What do you have going on? Is there another way that I can help you? If you want them to help you, you have to be willing to help them. If you want a true strategic partnership with your businesses, it has to be a two-way street. So that's the fundamental of it. Now, the first part is the strategic side. You are only going to get there by listening and basically what I like to say, playing sponge, absorbing what's around you. And you have to do that by working with your business partners to understand what their needs are. What are their issues? And again, having a little courage to share some ideas and ask questions. And once you do that, do what you do naturally, because we in FPNA, we are problem solvers. That's why we're not accountants and not to take anything <laughs> wrong away from accountants. I love accountants. You know, they certainly are a valuable part of the organization. Mm -hmm. But the difference between finance and accounting is a finance is you are out there in a much more ambiguous setting trying to solve a problem that maybe no one's ever solved before. And if that's what you do and that's what you like doing, carry that into your partnerships with your business. Talk to them about what their needs are, bounce some ideas around, get in front of a whiteboard, draw some things up, be proactive. Because again, the more you show your business partner that you can add value to their business and you want to help them succeed, the more they're going to engage with you in the same way. They'll invite you to those strategic leadership meetings. They'll make you a part of their senior leadership team. And now you're going to be involved in those conversations and making the relationship that you need to be that true strategic partner. Got it. That, that makes sense to me. And like I said, you know, starting with the partner, right? Partnership goes both ways. It's not a one-way street or it's not a partnership. And then the strategy part, bringing that in. So, you know, next question here. I know you've been involved in several finance software implementations. What yes. advice would you offer to someone considering implementing a new finance tool or going through a digital transformation? The first thing that you have to do is before you even come up with what the solution is, organize your data. If your data is not organized, doesn't matter. You could build, install the best system in the world. We've all heard the term garbage in, garbage out, right? So you got to make sure your data is clean. It is organized. You have the right hierarchies in place. You have the right source systems. Everybody, when you go over and say, oh, AT&T is a customer, it's not AT Amperan sign T or AT and the word written T or AT&T comma Inc., right? We've all been through that. And the data doesn't line up. If you have a customer ID number in one system, use it in all your other systems. Connect that data. The more your data is defined properly and connected and you have that good data governance, the smoother your transition or your data transition is going to be. So it all starts with the fundamental data of your, you know, your foundation, if you will, that says you got to have clean data. The next thing you got to be aware of is what are you really trying to do? If your biggest issue is you're trying to close the books faster, well, you don't need necessarily an analytical tool that will help you build a whole bunch of models, right? That's not going to get you to where you want to go. So make sure you're going to be looking at systems that have the features that you want. But don't just solve for today. Solve for three years, five years from now. Put those strategic thoughts into your head to say, okay, once we get the system, but what's the next step? Because if you go and you solve only for what your needs are for today, you might get a system that works great today, and in six months, you're going to say, oh, but it can't do this. Oh, crap. Now we got to go get another system and go do this other thing. So be thoughtful. Don't rush into this. Because if you're going trying to go too fast, just because you say, we need to get a system in there now, it's the same thing with like hiring, right? You go over and you just hire someone just to fill a chair, and you hire that wrong person. Down the road, you've created a whole big mess of problems for yourself. That could have been solved if you just slowed down, taken another week or two to make sure you're hiring the right person. The same thing with the system. Make sure you're getting the system that works for you. And there are a lot of great systems out there. And I've used a whole bunch of different systems. Some have been better than others. But really what it comes down to is were the systems installed in the right way that allowed the company to create scale on the back office functions? And if the answer is yes, then you're going to have a really good system. If the answer is no, because you have to pull data out of the system, do a bunch of stuff in Excel, and you're still doing much manual work, you didn't do your install correctly, and you didn't really solve for the right problem. So to me, that's what it comes down to, is really making sure you have your data organized, and you know exactly what it is you're solving for. 
I couldn't agree more having come from a data background, having been involved in implementations. As one person put it, we had on the show, Francesca Valli, she's like, she called it, put your house in order, right? Clean up your data. She one thing she listed was strategy, which you mentioned, right? Know your strategy, understand what you're doing. And then she's like, change management, communicate, communicate, communicate. Yes. And so many companies don't, don't do those three things. It's not, there's not rocket science here. You really need to think about it. So many companies look at it and, hey, technology is going to be solve my problems. No, technology is an enabler. You're going to solve your problems. You need to pick a technology and implement it in such a way that it will allow you to scale and make, you know, automate things, not look to it to be your problem solver and to make everything easier. That's right. It's a tool after all. The other thing I would say is, and you talked about it when you said communicate, bring other people into the conversation. If you're installing an EPM solution for FPNA, make sure that accounting and treasury and tax have views into that because they might want to leverage that system too. Make sure you're working with your IT group that can maybe help build some of those automated data feeds for you. Those types of things, don't just go out and say, we're finance, we're just going to do this as a finance tool. You know what? Maybe sales operations might want to leverage some of that stuff too in their planning and their analytics. So invite others into your tent, if you will, to make sure you're going to develop the best solution for your company, not just for you. Great advice to make sure you involve the company and think broader than just finance as you're implementing a tool. That's really good advice. So next question, this is a question we like to ask everybody. You know, we've all had failures. We've all had those times things haven't gone as we wanted. And I always like to say a failure is a learning experience. Could you maybe describe a time you've had a failure? I use that word loosely. And what you learned from that, how it helped you in your career. Oh, I've had lots of failures in my career. <laughs> I don't think, I mean, honestly, it's one of the best ways to learn. But Agreed. I can tell you a time, I was, uh, I was working at Franklin Templeton, and I was reporting directly into the CFO. And he put me on a project that I had no business being on. I was in the portfolio management and trading side of the business and had a good reputation there. He asked me to go over and work with the IT group to determine the total cost of ownership of each of the applications and how each of the different areas of the company was contributing to like how much expense they effectively owned of that system. Mm -hmm. I knew nothing about this. And I was just like, oh, okay, you want me to go and do it? So I go over and I figure out who the right people are to talk to in IT. And I go out and I talk to them. I interview them. What systems, you know, where is this coming from? And I'm gathering the data from the, you know, vendor management group about what the costs are for all these things. Then I go out and talk about who the users are and I put everything together and I put this model together and I go back and I'm presenting this back to the CFO and the chief information officer. And I present my solution and my boss says to me, Oh my God, you have solved more than we thought. This is like 90% of what we were trying to get. You have solved in this one model. This is absolutely amazing. And you failed miserably. And I'm looking around like, wait, huh? What? What are you talking about? <laughs> and he said, you went out and you built this model. You gathered the data. You put it all together. At what point did you bring other people along and get buy-in from the business, the people who are in IT, who have to effectively own this model? And I'm just looking at like, uh, you know, <laughs> you know, all of a sudden I kind of want to crawl under the table. And mm -hmm. after the meeting, he and I, we were walking across the street over to Starbucks. And he said to me, if you don't learn how to bring others along and to make sure that they have input and they feel like they have a stake in what you're doing, you will never succeed in this role. And he was 100% correct. And so I had to really, it was one of those moments that was just like such a glaring hole in what I was doing. But from that moment on, I really focused on the value of two things. One, being a partner, but really being that partner, it's being a partner with empathy. Empathy all of a sudden became a much bigger trait that I recognized I had to get better at. It wasn't something I did naturally. But once I started training myself on how to try and see things through other people's eyes, if I was in their position, how would I feel? Making sure I'm engaging with them in that way, my career started to really take off. And so that moment, that big failure, which was a big failure, it really taught me a valuable lesson on how to be better at engaging with people and being that better leader. And it really all came down to empathy. Thank you for sharing that. That is a perfect example. 
I, I can imagine how painful it was at the moment where, like you mentioned, wanting to crawl on their table. Like, this is a great model, but you totally screwed up, right? It's right. Like, wait, wait a second. I thought I did great. Why did you all of a sudden tell me I did a terrible job? Right. But- it wasn't the technical skills that I had. It was the mm-hmm. soft skills that I was lacking. And up to yeah. that point, I was all about, hey, look at what I'm delivering. Look at all the stuff that I'm giving out there. Look how great the data is. Look how great the models are. But that could only get you so far. After that, it's about bringing people together and leading people to a better place. And it wasn't until that moment that I recognized that gap in my skill set. That is a great lesson. And I've had some similar where I've learned that importance that you have to work with the people and bring them along. doesn't matter how good of an idea you have. If you can't sell it, you're going to have a hard time being successful. Yep, absolutely. So this is a question we like to ask everybody. It's one of our uh, kind of fun questions to get to know our uh, guests a little bit more. What is something unique about you that you can share with our audience? Something they wouldn't find online, something you know people wouldn't normally know? Well, so I'm going to give two things. One, you could kind of find it online, but it is, I think, unique to me. Uh, I've actually written a novel. It's available on oh. Amazon. Uh, it's called One Moment in Time. It was one of those things that I've always wanted to do. And so after I graduated from MBA school, because uh, I did my MBA at night while I was working, I was like, hey, you know what? I got all this energy. I'm, work- I'm used to working all these extra hours. So I went through and I wrote a novel. And it got published in 2011. So I was very proud of that. Excited. The other thing I would say is I am, you know, just a diehard baseball fan. In fact, I've been a season ticket holder of the Oakland A's since 1997. Well, partial season. Of course, can't go to all 81 games. But there aren't many of us Oakland A's fans out there. If anyone's a baseball fan, you know exactly <laughs> what I'm talking about. I kind of think of us like the Marines. We're the few and the proud. <laughs> you know, There aren't many of us at the stadiums, but we try and make a lot of noise. And it's something that, that I truly enjoy. I, I figured you were going to say something about baseball as I look behind you there and I can see a yes. couple hundred, it looks like a couple hundred baseballs, some autographed pictures, a big bat, all those type of things. So yeah, the A's is a fun one. I once met uh, Dennis Eckersley's parents oh, okay. when I was living in the Bay Area. So that was kind of fun talking to him a little bit about baseball and their son and some things. I'm a not a huge baseball fan, but I've always enjoyed the Dodgers. So I, I grew up as a Yankee Dodger fan. The A's won me over when I started going to a lot of games. I'm a dire A's fan. Still like the Dodgers, though. This year was a little tough. 111 wins and couldn't get to the World Series. You had to remind me of that part. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So next question to get to know a little bit about you is, do you have a favorite quote or a saying that you like? So I have two. One is from this Austrian guy with weird hair named Albert Einstein. (laughs) He said, imagination is more important than knowledge. And I 100% believe in that because if you can't imagine where you're going, it doesn't matter what you know, because what you know is already taking place. The imagination is the future side of things. The other one that I like is actually from the CEO of Charles Schwab when I was working there, uh, Walt Bettinger. And he said, leadership isn't about who you can tell what to do or who you directly manage. It's about who follows you when they don't have to. And I love that because I think about the times in my career that I've had to lead people who didn't report to me. They're in part of other groups or whatever. Or when I was leaving a company and going somewhere else and people would say, if you have an opportunity on your team for me to come over, I would love to come and work for you. Even if they never worked for me before. That is just some of the best compliments I've ever had. And so I really think that's, that's true. If you don't, you know, just because you manage people doesn't make you a leader. A leader is somebody who gets people to follow them, especially when they don't have to. That, that, that to me is, is a fantastic quote. Both of those are great. Thank you for sharing them. I really like those. So this is another question we ask everybody. Our sponsor is DataRails and they're uh, big fans of Excel, have, you know, an FP&A platform built around Excel. So we like to ask everyone what their favorite Excel formula could be a function, a feature, yeah, but what's your favorite thing in Excel? Uh, you know, probably some ifs. You know, I, I probably use some ifs more than I ever thought I would in, in modeling. You know, it gives you all that flexibility. I mean, certainly you got VLOOKUPs and stuff, but VLOOKUPs is kind of a, a, is a limited some if, if you weigh in a way, because you're looking at something very specific. But 
yeah, I'd probably say some F would be my favorite formula. That works. And that definitely one we all use a lot in modeling. I'm a big fan of some ifs and I've used it many a time. So I know we're coming up on the end of our time here and really enjoyed chatting with you. So I have one last question here for you. What advice would you offer to someone starting their career today who wants to work in FP&A? So two things I would say. Number one, be flexible, be open to different ideas and really understand the value of where ideas can come from and how to put them together to really develop a solution. And then the second one is be engaging. That's something people tell me all the time that they say, I show up with a lot of energy. And I don't know if I do or not. It's just me. I, you know, okay. But it is something that I notice when I'm talking with somebody, whether or not they're engaged and how they're engaged. Do they have that excitement in their voice? And when they do, that excitement becomes contagious. So try and be that person who just makes that positive impact on all the people around you. And you're going to have a lot of people who are going to want to work. with. Great advice. I mean, being engaging and being positive makes a huge difference. Just you know, having a smile on your face, being happy, you know, staying away from the negative people will be drawn to you just by that alone. It's amazing how much, you know, people want to be around positive people that, you know, that put off energy instead of take energy. We've all been around the ones where you're like, all right, I don't want to be around this person. I'm going to, you know, get away. Exactly. And that's never fun. So, so great advice. So if people want to follow you or learn more about you, is there a place where you do any kind of blogging or anything where people, you know, maybe LinkedIn connect with you or anything like that? You know, LinkedIn, probably the best thing. And what I would say is if you just go over, if I don't know you and you just say, I want to connect with you, I'm probably not going to accept you. If you want, again, be engaging. Say, hey, I heard you on the FPNA Today podcast. Love what you said. You know, I would like to follow you. Whatever. That is, you know, I will usually accept those types of requests. But if you just don't say anything, eh, what, what value are you bringing? So that's that's typically probably the best way to engage with me. Great. And that's great advice around actually leaving a message that is personal instead of just the automated, hey, connect with me. Exactly. So on that note, we'll go ahead and let you go. I know you have a meeting here, but we really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for uh, carving out some time for us, Glenn. It was an honor to have you on the show. Thank you, Paul. It was my pleasure. I really enjoyed it.